Welcome to The Few, brought to you by Zappo Bank. In this series, we explore the extraordinary journeys of a select inspirational few whose quiet revolutions have sparked change across the globe. Their stories are those of vision, tireless dedication, and unwavering belief. Stories that echo our own. What we see in them, we see in ourselves. What they believe, we believe. And that when human ingenuity and determination come together, anything is possible. In this episode, I am joined by sneakerhead royalty, DJ, and fashion entrepreneur, Vatukade. La familia, we family, we together, stronger in a unit than you'll ever be on your own. Loyalty over royalty. That means more to me than any financial gain. My biggest mistake has always been trusting someone too much and getting burnt at the end. Our strong point was always wanting to be exclusive, wanting to be different, having something that no one else has, and then that immediately made us stand out. But okay, that is such a um, movie star name. I need to know before we even start this conversation where Vatokade comes from. So, uh, Kate is obviously my my name. Vato was a nickname that just stuck with me from my senior my senior years in high school. Um, I think because we were obsessed with this movie called Blood In and Blood Out. I'm not sure if if you've seen it. No, but it's like a classic movie. Me and all my friends were obsessed with this movie, and we got tattoos young, so we thought we were these guys. We used to call ourselves the Vatos. So Vato K just stuck with me since then, I guess. That's incredible. What, when you, when I think, when I speak up to people most of the time, um, the first thing I always think about, and this is, has a lot to do with psychological terms and how the developmental stages often influence who we become as adults, right? When you think about the environment that shaped you, what are some key markers that you think have really created uh, Vato that's sitting in front of me today? I think just doing everything in a very non-traditional way. So I think just staying true to myself, what really interests me and chasing my dream in the most non-traditional ways possible is what I guess shaped my persona and my character, I guess. When you think about your childhood, what memory comes up? It's all, I'm always curious, right? Because there's a lot of memories, depending on which day someone asks you this question and uh, which state you're in, it's a, different, it's a different answer all the time. But sitting here today, when you think about your childhood, what memory shows up for you? And how do you think that memory has shaped who you've become today? Oh, there's a lot, like you say, there's, there's, there's too many memories. There's too many like instances where you can look back, yeah. you know what I mean, and be like, wow, this is this is materialized or this is manifested or whatever. But I think the most, the one that always comes back to me and gets me is like when I was, I was about ages old and that's how I'm obsessed already with cars and just used to just look at cars, like find find cars in, in the in the neighborhood or at, at the school when kids were getting fetched and like just look at these cars and they have dreams like one day one day I'm gonna drive a car yeah. like this or one day I'm gonna know what it's like to feel to drive this car. Yeah. And then obviously 
growing up, going through school and never realizing that it's, it's possible like in the very near future, you know yeah. what I mean? So that always for me is like my biggest motivation, looking back at that. Were you the type of kid that was around a lot of other boys or were you someone who spent a lot of time when you were young? And were the other boys dreaming the way that you were dreaming in the neighborhood? No. They were not? <laughs> no, no. Like I, I was always, my friends would always um, call me, even my family would always call me the, the big dreamer, you know? Really? Yeah, out of the, the, the squad or the family or whatever, because I always had these crazy ideas, these crazy dreams. When you think about your big dreams, where did you see that life? For me, it was, it was pretty, it was pretty um, weird in the way it, it materialized, not maybe directly from my passion with streetwear and, and um, sneakers, but in the aspect of forming this something different socially for people to network and to do something differently at the time, that was my, my, my goal. I'm like, okay, there's all these cool, like, that time it was like electronic house or something all these cool parties and whatever, but like, it doesn't feel like there's uh, a collective yet. Yeah. I felt like there was no collective yet for like-minded people. So I'm like, what about if we introduce some sort of a, a brand or a, an idea to bring like-minded people together yeah. to experience something that they might all have a, a shared interest in. So I, I, start, I started this brand back then called We Are One and it was an event brand. How old were you? Fresh out of high school. Okay. So 18. Mm-hmm. 18. That time I, was, I taught myself to, to um, DJ. Just had in school still. Uh, there would be little like house parties. People would be like, yo, you need to DJ at the house party. would be like, cool. Uh, how much is the equipment? And I'd find out how much to hide the equipment was be 800 rand or 1,000 rand at the time. Tell whoever's hosting the party, they, they'd be like, cool, let's make it happen. Hire the stuff. And then at the time I'm hiring the stuff and I'm DJing, I'm learning too. Yeah. So it was a, a learning curve for me, but I had no, I had no other means of, of learning because I couldn't, I didn't have the equipment, I didn't know anyone with the equipment, I didn't yeah. have the money to hire or to buy, to buy art. So as that's, started happening, people were like, okay, cool. This guy's actually a DJ now. Mm-hmm. Or he's, he's actually getting better, you know? So that kind of grew with me from my senior year to out of school where I'm like, okay, now it's time to put this practice together, put this concept together and try and make it work. And at the time it was um, Vakamata at Monte yeah, Casino, yeah. I remember that? Yeah. Yes. So that was the first, the first um, space that kind of heard me out because now you must remember I'm like this kid that's out of school. Yeah. Tiny, tiny. Yeah. They're like, probably look like you're still in school anyway. You got this big idea, this big dream. Yeah. But it's not taking me serious. So one of the first, one of the first places to give me a chance in to, to prove them. And we did our first events and we marketed completely differently. We were using video and interview and using at the time all these influential people that were tapped into what I thought at the time were the interests of We Are One, yeah. which is the brand, which is like, we are all one, yeah. you know? And it was, it was such a crazy success. The, the lines at, at um, Monte Casino were like full, 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 full till, till the lift. Like security were like- Were these kids from the north? It was just everyone. 
Yeah. People came from the north. People came from the south where I was from. People came from the west. My partner, she was from there. She helped me put like all these ideas and the marketing together from her end. So it was just such a, a, a network of different people, different backgrounds. And it was, it was awesome. Like, and that time, remember, I'm 18. I had, um, I didn't have to really pay any expenses out of my pocket at the time. So I just rolling capital, what I had at the time, maybe like one or two grand, three grand, because the rest of my expenses had to be paid after. Mm. So <laughs> I have no option now failing. So I'm like, okay, do or die. We go hard, hard, hard. Like I say, insane turnout, crowds of people everywhere. Full, the club was at full capacity at like 9 p.m., 1,000 yeah. people. And we we turned over, if I can remember correctly, it was like 120,000 120, rand that night. So what, was that your first deal with the club where you were not actually a DJ, but you were actually throwing yeah, a party at the club? Actually, okay. my party. Okay. So I'm like, and my arrangement with the club was whatever I make at the door is my money. Whatever they make at the bar is their money. So wait, you are extremely shy, right? Yeah. So how do these deals happen? Like, how do you approach <laughs> the club owner? I, I'm, I'm just thinking like the, the, your, your energy is like, such a, a contradiction because yeah. you're extremely shy, but also extremely ambitious in terms of, I think once you get your mind around something, you just really go hard. So the 18-year-old Vato, I imagine, is shyer than the 30-year-old Vato. Yeah. So how do, you, how do you even start to have a conversation with the club owners at, at Vaca, which was really a big club at that time? And how do you convince them to take a risk on you? Are, to be honest, I I don't know what, I don't know what made them believe me. Obviously, there were many other places I approached. Yeah. You remember that? It wasn't like one hit wonder. Okay. So I was like, had a few places in mind, but Vaka was the one that actually took time to hear me out. I don't, I guess God just gave me an opportunity or told that man who was running Vaka at the time, like, give the kid a shot or whatever. But we never looked, we never looked back after that. I mean, they couldn't believe it at the time. Because they're like, who the hell, who the hell are you? Like, yeah. where do you bring? one and a half thousand people to a little club for the club I'd make a hundred thousand rand at that time, you know, in, in like a few hours. Who is around you when all of this is happening? I, I, I think one of the things that I pick up in every engagement with you and um, every article I read about you is, is this idea of, I guess it goes back to even the creation of the concept We Are One. You have this community of people that you move with. Yes. Right? When you're doing all of this, who's around you and how do you believe they impacted your ability to to keep dreaming bigger? My whole my whole thing with life is like La Familia. La Familia, it's the whole point of the brand. You know what I mean? We family, we together, we for for life, for our just stronger in a unit than you'll ever be on your own. Mm. So when I feel like when you have support system like that and when you're from like the real bottom with no support system, that you can become untouchable mm. because you have people with you from day one who were there before there was anything. So they're there for their loyalty. You know what I mean? So my whole thing is loyalty over royalty. Yeah, I've said it before that means more to me than any financial gain. And with that, I think comes a lot more in life, you know what I mean? With mm. trusting, growing, helping others. Do you ever look back at your life and look at moments and think, that could have gone wrong? 
that could have gone significantly bad. Yes. As, 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 especially as it relates to moving with a group of people. Because, you know, when, when you have this commitment to, to people, it does not necessarily mean that they have the same vision and ideas as you do. 100%. Have you had moments when you, you've looked back and thought, that could have really gone bad and I could have made a better decision than the one that I made? Yeah. I think there's a few moments looking back where I'm like, things really turned out better than they could have because, like you said, could have gone, something could have gone seriously wrong. Yeah. But it all comes down to decisions, you know, listening, understanding that not everyone around you has good intention. Absolutely. You might think that because you might have a generous, I mean, a genuine personality mm. thinking everyone is like you or everyone you want, everyone loves positivity or supports like you, you understand? But it, will t- it takes a few, it takes a few encounters of getting hurt by someone uh, or getting let down by someone to understand that yeah. okay, as humans, we're not perfect. And some people might have been raised different or have different values or different beliefs in you and they're going to let you down in some aspects. So yeah. my biggest mistake has always been trusting someone too much and getting burnt at the end. And it's happened more than I'd, more than I'd like to recount, but nothing where our lives have ever been in serious danger or jeopardy, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's just been bad decisions of trusting the wrong people, letting people that's people close to you that shouldn't be close to you. Yeah. You understand? And how have you managed to remain committed to this idea of La Familia even after being burned? I mean, I know I've had experiences where I've um, really trusted people or invested in people and walked away feeling a bit sour, you know, and, and and rethinking the whole idea of that deep commitment to people. What is it about you that allows you to go through those experiences and not change that idea of we are one, we still need to move as a unit, even if maybe the unit shifts and there's other people that move out and other people yeah. move in. Why is it so important for you to have this community of people and this movement with people even after you've been burned? Because I believe that you can only do so much on your own, you know, where you get to a point like, okay, there's too much on my shoulders right now. Yeah. Or what more can I possibly accomplish? So when you start collaborating and sharing ideas, you get in a different perspective, maybe from someone who might think a little bit differently a little bit more creatively or just from any different perspective that could have benefit for your own, your own, um, development and development. Growth. Yes. Yeah. So now it becomes a thing of where at the same time, you also might have that same, um, positive attribute to them yeah. in their growth. So that's the way I see it going forward. Your industry is not easy. I mean, I read about other shops that came before yours that were challenged by some of the the issues that you're facing with uh, robberies and, and, and setbacks, you know, that do impact the business financially. Why, 
what is your strategy in, in, in dealing with some of those challenges, particularly when you've seen other businesses dissolve in front of your eyes? What do you think you're doing differently that's going to keep La Familia growing and, and, and present in, in, in the culture? I think um, just always being never comfortable, never feeling like we're the best, we're established, you know what I mean? Feeling like we constantly need to be better in our game, need to be doing something differently, need to be marketing differently, branding differently. We always just want to be different. Yeah. And I think that gives us the advantage. But the challenges are, it's really, it's crazy. There's been many times where we've come close to almost losing our business because of things that have been completely out of our control. Like you say, the robbery, um, COVID, landlords who think they can take uh, the law into their own hand, you know. There's also, South Africa is, it's, it's fairly, it's fairly, um, can you say, dangerous for small young entrepreneurs who don't know their way about the industry or how dangerous things can be and how you can't just trust anyone you do business with, you know? So it's a lot of bumping your head and learning, learning curves. That's like I say before, is the best, your, your, your best piece of um, advice. Yeah. It's going to be your school fees. And that's learning the, learning the lesson the hard way. You don't, want, you don't want to learn it again. So you make sure and you learn from there. But other than that, I would, just being inspired as an individual and not wanting to give up on my brand that or my business idea that I began with. Yeah. Like I know some entrepreneurs prefer to start projects and then turn up successful projects, sell it and onto the next, onto the next. Which I have I have interest in also expanding my 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 list of can I say equity into maybe future businesses and other industries, but La Familia will always be like the, the baby because it's the passion project, you know? Yeah. As I grow, like all the people that were into sneakers when we were younger are into cars and watches now. So it's just like a, um, an accolade, I guess, of growing into having, having your interest grow as yeah. you grow, you yeah. know? But the same bracket. There are many barriers to entry in your industry. And I think the most significant one is, of course, creating exclusivity around what becomes available in your shop. I want to know how does the young Vato coming into this industry even figure out how to get some of the items that are in your shop delivered to your shop? What does that process look like? Where do you start? The Louis Vuitton, the special items that people can't get anywhere else, and the Balenciaga. What... I think that's such a huge barrier to enter for a lot of people, not only just financially, but in just overcoming some of the challenges that come with gatekeepers. How did you deal with that? And what's the story behind figuring that piece out for your business? I think just having the urge to, ha you, I have to find a way right now to have this because this is what my brand is about. You know what I mean? So whatever the, whatever the means are, we're going to get this. Obviously the barrier at the, that point is being a tiny little, nobody in the industry of South Africa, which is small in an international fashion sense. Like we're not even recognized by some international cities. Some brands don't want to really stock uh, in South Africa. So at this point, we like, what is the, 
what's 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 stopping what's stopping these brands from getting here? Okay, no one has an account big enough to become an official distributor or retailer, or no one actually sees the potential of this brand, or people actually just don't um, understand the brand yet, or they're not aware of it yet. And I don't know, I don't know what it is if it's been like a specific um, personality type. You know, when you like when you an admirer of certain things. Not only fine things, but anything. Yeah. You, you, you like you. For example, you like specific coffee. You like specific yes. perfume. You like specific texture of clothing on you. You know what I mean. You're yeah. very specific. So I've always been like one of these people that has had, that have had very specific interest in things. And when I when I started researching now as a young um, shop owner, what brands can we put in our store to be different? I was looking at stuff that interests me from a, an artistic perspective. So what, like what looks pretty different. I don't want just a random printed t-shirts that anyone can get. I want to be different, but we can't be too too different where we bring in things and people don't even know what it is. So whatever caught, caught our eye at that time, culturally, it was Virgil. He was doing Pyrex and then Off-White had come into the scene. And that to me at the time was like, okay, this looks cool. You know, like this is different. What's his take? And he has put in these classic um, Cavaggio prints on t-shirts, but the print was so like, it looked like paint on t-shirts. And to me, that was so cool. And like the cutoff and the tag, to me, it was so cool at the time. And no one had that here. So in that instance, we saw Off-White, saw the opportunity first to bring it here. Yeah. Not like a container full of stock because we don't have the money to open an account or to become an official distributor for Off-White. Yeah. At the time, they're still a small brand. I don't even think it had been acquired by a New Gods group at the time. So it was about having now these little connections that we make online or when we go and visit, seeing who has access to this brand or to Virgil or to the distributors and how do we get our hands on this stuff at the right price. And that time there's no right price, you know, it's retail and resale. <laughs> there's no, no, you can get this for wholesale, 50% off, nothing like that. This stuff is selling out when it drops. Yeah, yeah. So we thought, okay, cool, bring one or two pieces. People might not recognize it. Um, it's, it's, it's blowing up internationally now, but as soon as it landed, people, people are, in, they, in, they tapped in. Yeah. Thanks to the internet, thanks to Instagram, thanks to YouTube, people are tapped in. Might be a niche market at that time, 2016, very niche. But now, I mean, Off-White's one of the biggest brands in the world. Everyone knows about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it was small things like that and just looking for the the brands that had special approach or doing things differently and that I could see, okay, they, 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 yeah, for the long run. This is not some overnight uh, seasonal stuff, you know? These are guys that are doing innovative stuff. And just from that time to never saying, okay, now we've got the brand, we can, we can relax. Yeah. I've always wanted to find what's next, what's next, what's cool, you know? And making sure that whatever that interests us personally is in our store yeah. at the same time. So I mean, we've, never, we've never sold something that we don't personally like mm. or mess with. This is two questions that might have one answer, but I'm very curious. What is the most prized item at the store right now? And 
Was it the most difficult to get? Well, we've had a lot of rare stuff come through. One of the, I would say one of the most memorable sources or hunts you can say was, was like treasure hunting. Was finding a pair of Red Octobers. So the, the Nike Yeezy. So that's the Nike Kanye, times Kanye West, Red October. That's like from 20, um, what, 2012, I'm, I'm trying to remember. Yeah, 2012. We found this in New York in 2018. And this is like rare. Like you don't just find a Red October, you know? Now there's StockX and all that. So it's easier to find shoes on the marketplaces. But that time now you in the streets in New York and you find a Red October. So, and that was like one of the shoes that we always dreamt of having, acquiring, and it was just impossible until we came across uh, a store in New York and we had did a buyout from them on a couple of Travis Scott sixes, Air Jordan sixes, the green ones. And I think a couple of Travis Scott Jordan ones. So I said to the dude, I'm like, they were listed for like a crazy price. I think about $10,000 at the time, this is 20, yeah, 2018, so $10,000 at the time. And I gave the dude like a, a low ball, so a, a low offer. And he was like, uh, cool, you can take them because we took so many Jordan ones. So I was like, are you sure? And then he was like, yeah. Then I asked my mother, I'm like, can we take them? And she was like, yeah. So we took them and I had them for about, I didn't even have them in the store. I was like, these need to stay at home because it's a holy Yeah, because I was about to ask, <laughs> when you find something like that, do you immediately put it up for sale no. at the shop or do you keep it and like go to bed in it and yeah. just like <laughs> keep it to yourself a little bit before you sell it? It was literally in this, in a display box at home, not a box, a cabinet with like all our stuff that we really find um, significantly important to us, you know, yeah. little small memories or little small items that we think have like given us our reputation or our character of our brand. So that was in there. That was like my prized possession. And yeah, I used to look at them at night walking past like, wow, I actually have these in here. Never got the opportunity to wear them. And then eventually in 20, the end of, beginning of 2020, I think we, we had an offer on them. And I wish, now I regret it, I wish, but we had a good offer on them and ended up selling them. But if I had kept them now, those shoes are worth like a lot, maybe three times more than we sold them for. That's incredible. So I regret. And they only, they only become more, more and more important, more culture, culturally significant. Like this collaboration actually shaped the future of collaborations in sneakers yeah. or style of sneakers or the shift from Nike to Adidas and Adidas back to Jordan, you know? So that was uh, one of the special ones to me. And then definitely at the moment, I would say the Louis Vuitton uh, Air Force. Mm -hmm. That was Virgil's major project with, I mean, Louis Vuitton and Nike. Just imagine thinking of a Nike and Louis Vuitton collab. Like maybe 15 years ago and everyone would have thought that's impossible. Impossible, yeah. So that to me is something that you have to have. I mean, who... Is that at the shop or at home? That's at, that's at the shop. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was at home for some time, but us, we, ha we had to put in the store. 
even on our Instagram page, our store, it doesn't say like retail store. It says, um, it says modern museum, modern art museum. I love that. So we look at our stock at, as more of, as more of a, an artifact or as more of an, uh, a collection, special piece to your collection than just a random item, you know? Yeah. We value it like that. I can't imagine you would have dreamt of what you do now as a young kid. Like there was no symbol or possibility of having a role model that looked like what you look like today. So I want to know what you wanted to be when you were younger and, and what was the, the journey to getting to who you are today? Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think it was always just having this, this, this attitude like, I'm, no, I'm going to do things different yeah. no matter what, no matter what it takes, no matter what anyone says, you know, having like this badass attitude, you know, but finding ways, like being in creative and finding ways to make things work every time because you don't want to look like, a, like an idiot now yeah. after having a big mouth. Yeah. Did you have a big mouth? Yeah. I, th- I think... Not as in, not in, not in an arrogant way. Yeah. Because, like I said, I'm a shy person. Yeah. But once I say, once I think I can do something, I might be a bit overconfident. Okay. So then I've had to make sure, like, yo, can't, can't mess up. You have to deliver. I have to deliver. Yeah. Okay. All right. Back to what you wanted to be. Um, role models. I, I don't know. I think I had very, very weird, not very untraditional. Let's say role models. Like I was really inspired by rappers at that time, watching like 50 Cent's movie, <laughs> all these movies, and listening to the music and being like, these guys are actually telling the truth. You know what I mean? Like this isn't a, this isn't a movie telling the truth, he's telling his life story. So, and just seeing guys that like were from those kind of circumstances also turned out to be successful in what they were passionate Did about. Did you feel like they were similar to yours? I never felt like it was similar to mine, but I felt I, fa- I found it um, extremely motivating to me to be able to, to be f- to get out of that yeah. and become what they became. Yes, to mm. be such an underdog. Yeah, to be like the bottom of the bottom and to still do something. So that for me, and everyone saying no, you know that's not real, or whatever. But learning that some of these stories are real, yeah. and some of these some of these people uh, who have done significant things in in industries and business that would have also been thought of impossible by everyone else. Even if it's been like some negative figures in, in history, just doing things untraditionally, you know what I mean? But they still did it. So that to me is like, okay, how? Yeah. I can't imagine though, as a kid, if someone came up to you and was like, what do you want to be when you grow up, Kate? You're like 50 cent. So I want to <laughs> know the story that you gave people when they asked you, so are we getting a doctor? Are we getting a lawyer in this house? What was that story? From uh, an age where I could say, okay, professionally, I'm capable of this and this. It went from being a professional skater to uh, uh, owning a, a skate park and building skate parks for people, ramps and whatever, with my friends when we were younger to then becoming a, a lawyer. So then just being like, no, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. I'm going to work for myself. And yeah. whatever whatever my passion is, is that's what I'm going to pursue. So starting with the events, the music, and then growing into 
more direct fashion, um, networking, personality, you know, getting to getting um, acquainted with the big, big shots in the industry at the time. Yeah. And I mean, regardless of what you do, whether you are an athlete or uh, an artist or just a celebrity in general, everyone loves to look good. Everyone loves fashion. And what is it? What are you mo- most interested in as a person? Whatever anyone else can't have easily. Yeah, the exclusivity is a big thing. Yeah. So our our strong point was always wanting to be exclusive, wanting to be different, having whatever, no, what it, having something that no one else has, and then yeah. that immediately made made us stand out from a from an early an early point with La Familia, even yeah. before I think formally introducing it. You know, that's. People people already taking notice of notice of us because of that. Yeah, I can't imagine your mom was too chuffed about you and and skating. Maybe when you were a bit younger, um, he, she might have had ambitions for you to be maybe employed somewhere and have the security of a job and a, a salary. How how did you navigate taking her along your journey and what were some of the challenges there? She taught me from a pretty young age. Um, and also once she had gotten involved with my, my stepdad, he was also really, um, strict on teaching how, how to, to work hard, mm. you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. how to work for things. So, and they, they had, at some point had a little business where I was about, um, let's say about what? 12 years old, they had a, a little business that I would actually go work at on the weekend. Yeah. So, and I enjoyed it. Like I, I enjoyed working for them, helping them, getting custom, helping customers, doing yeah. chores, doing anything for them and getting a little… A little cash. A little cash at the end of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. This little remuneration was like, wow, I worked for that. That's mine. I can do what I want with it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I don't have to ask my mom, can you buy me this or inconvenience anyone because yeah. I have my own. So from a young age, I already… Um, had respect for working for your for for stuff and yeah. also the idea of work was mm-hmm. and to me it was fun. I was like, I'm not doing, I'm not doing. Um, it's not a chore to me. It's it's a it's something that's making money, and I can also have fun doing it. You know what I mean? So that that was um, pretty motivating for me from that age to be like, I'd rather, instead of going to ride bikes with my friends today, while my mom is at work, I'd rather go make cash. And make money, yeah. yeah. So we'd go, um, my mom's friends or whatever would come to her house and I'd say, can I please wash the cars? I would do anything like that. Yeah. Um, I'd go to my grandfather, ask him, can I come to work with him? Yeah. Go <laughs> to work with him in the school holidays, you know what I mean? Yeah. I was always looking to work. And... Eventually, getting a little bit older and also wanting to have nice things, you know, you want all the stuff that like all the cool kids in the school have. Um, but with that, obviously, inconveniencing your your mom or draining anyone at home. Because, yeah, just creating frustration. Yeah, you know, they yeah. have their own problems, problems. to deal with. And mm-hmm. now you've got to remember, this is like 2008. So yeah. Things were really tough. People, um, my mom lost her business. 
and things were just really tough for anyone. Yeah. So the last thing I wanted was to now um, put more stress on my mom. So, and at this time now she's pregnant with my little sister. I mean, grade 10. So this is where I get this bright idea now to start selling clothes at school. So <laughs> they, I don't know how at this age, but I got this contact with some, um, it was a foreign dude and he was, he had all this, uh, I don't know if you remember, Ed Hardy. Yes. And Christian Gutierrez. Yes. That way, that, yes, that era. I remember that era. <laughs> so this guy had this stuff and I would take like one t-shirt, two t-shirts, um, ask my mom to borrow me the money for one or two t-shirts, take them to school, sell them that week, then come back, get another one and sell them that week. And I would just continue doing that and saving this little cash away, saving this little cash away. And then I learned like at that, at that time already, like, okay, this is a pretty viable um, career option. But obviously I can't, I was like, that's how my mom's like, are you going to sell clothes at the boots of your car one day? You know, yeah. so what are you going to do? Yeah. You need to, if you want to do that, you must go to school. You must go study business management. Learn how to run a business because you might have the idea, but if you don't have the, the skill, your business won't last. So I always had that fear, you know? You know, I'm listening to your story and one of the, the, the key theme I'm picking up is this chase for financial security. What was also interesting is hearing you speak very briefly about how your mom lost her business and how that impacted you. Do you find that a lot of the decisions that you make today around financial security are largely influenced up by that specific moment? Looking back now, my, I think the, the most, the biggest factor, the biggest driving factor for me was definitely not wanting to experience that again or my family to experience that again. That's just that, that stress, you know, and that's... Not knowing where the next money is yeah. going to come from, how you're going to take care of things. Of course, especially yeah. when there's kids involved, you know, and yeah. then you don't want to see also your parents being like heartbroken like that, you know, it's it's just terrible to to experience. So, but in the, at the same time, it also taught me that you don't give up. You know what I mean? Just because this ends here doesn't mean uh, you give up and don't have hope. Yeah. You know what I mean? You move on to the next thing and make that work. Use the, the last failure as your next driver. Your next lesson. Yes. Yeah. So I think I got a lot of that charisma from seeing my mom not ever give up mm. no matter how things work out. You know what I mean? And yeah. always just doing what she has to, to for, for her kids to survive or for her to take care of her, her things. So I was, I guess that pretty much influenced me from a, a young age. Mm. It's like giving up is actually not an option. You just find another way. There's something you said to me that was really, really powerful. I actually wrote it down because it's something that resonated with me. And you said the management of money is actually harder than the making of money. What steps have you taken to, to get better at understanding how to manage the money that you have coming in? At now, I think I've only woken up. Like at 30 years, like, king, yeah. everything changes. Yeah. And I'm like, what have I done for the past 10 years? Listen, <laughs> you're not the only one. I think the 20s are about that financial mistakes, right? When I think about, I, I, I was saying to someone, if I saved half of the money I spent in my 20s, I don't think I would ever, ever be broke for the rest of my life. 
I think it boils down to, again, circumstances. Some people, some families are fortunate enough to have financial education or be financially literate to be like, this is what you do and this is what you don't do. They also might have those resources already passed down generationally, you understand? Yeah. Where, I mean, my mom was also first generation business, mm. started herself, her parents are not from here. So it was all learning, learning for her. And uh, the, the management's, the management lesson for me is just you can keep making the money till you die. Once you overcome that mentally to be like completely desensitized to be like money is money, it doesn't affect in, me in the way I think or the way I live because I'm the same human. I have the same brain. Once you desensitize to that, um, that idea of money and it shouldn't control you, it can become can become a weapon for you or against you, you know? I'm working towards where it's meaningless to me and I can just keep making it. And that's something I learned with um, new research into trading, for mm. example, and investing, you know? Yeah. When you become desensitized to it, to a point where it's meaningless, you can make it a million times. But where it controls you to like, this runs my life. Yeah. I'm ruined because I lost my money. Then it's going to have that, 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 that vice over you. So, and like I said before to you, my, my, the biggest, the biggest um, uh, lesson for me in the management was all the school fees. Paying over and over and over and over and not wanting to make those mistakes. And it's never ending. I might say now because I'm 30 or because I've been doing business for 10 years plus that I've learned all the lessons. Yeah. And I've paid all my school fees because I'm I'm sure I'm far from it. I still consider myself very small, very um, young in the game. And I still feel like I have a long way to go. Like I have a lot of um, goals and dreams to still achieve and to walk, um, to work towards. Yeah. So this is, I feel like still an early start for me, but... It's, it's, um, it's comforting and like inspiring to also s to, to see people, people around you recognize your, your, your effort and the things you do. Vato, there's a lot that you decided to take on for the family very young. Um, all these ideas that you came up with and wanted to execute very quickly. By the time that you were 26, you had bought your first car cash. I think by the time you were 21, a lot of things happened very early for you. But I always think about the sacrifices, right, that you have to make, especially when you achieve success at a very young age. What did those sacrifices look like for you? What was the cost of at a very young age deciding that you're going to figure out life for yourself? And you, you speak a lot about not wanting to be a burden, right, to your parents or to anyone else. What, what was the cost? What, what did you lose by uh, pursuing that agenda as, as intensely as you have? Uh, it boils down to a few very defining things for me as a young kid, you know. 
Um, I think one of the main things for me was um, losing my my father very young. So, and also someone who had a lot of potential, but never had the right support system and then ended up just with the wrong people and ended up wasting his life. So that side of my family was very, can I say, I always had a very soft spot for them. And then on the circumstances with my mom as well, there was no room to not let my mother down as well as my family for my father down. So at the same time, not knowing how, I just knew that, okay, I don't want to do, I don't want to go down that same road. Yeah. So do everything differently. Even though I'm not a, I'm not saying I'm a saint. Yeah. I still, <laughs> you know, <laughs> we, we still grow up, um, get into trouble, do what you do when you're young, learn your lessons. But I had a, I had a fear, I always had this fear of failing and letting myself go like that. So I told myself at a very young age, at 14, I lost my dad. And I said, that's never happening. So I literally said, I'm going to do whatever it takes to be successful or I'm going to die trying. But I'm not going to be a waste of potential because of circumstances or because of history or because of where we're from or, you know, none of it matters. The story is so inspiring. Thank you for spending time with me today. I think for anyone listening and watching, there are such clear takeouts around not allowing your circumstances and limitations to shape who you become and really pursuing your goals with everything in you. But more than anything, the idea of taking the family along, I think it's a, it's a very powerful narrative that shows up a lot in everything that you share. So thank you so much. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining us. This has been The View, brought to you by Zappa Bank.